book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. And I want to start this morning by reading the first four verses for us. So Luke chapter 1, beginning with the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The year is 61 A.D. And after a long journey that included a shipwreck and being washed ashore on the island of Malta, Paul has finally made it to Rome. He's technically a Roman prisoner. He's awaiting his trial And yet, as we just heard in the reading from Acts, maybe because of his status as a Roman citizen, Paul was given a great deal of liberty as a prisoner in Rome. Instead of a prison cell, like the one he had just spent two years living in at Caesarea Maritime, Paul in Rome was given the freedom to stay in a rented house at his own expense. A Roman guard was assigned to him Uh, He is never apart from his Roman captors. Uh, In Ephesians 6, Paul tells his readers to remember his chains. So he may have been speaking metaphorically, or there may really have been a chain where he was kept at all times attached to his Roman guard. But even in this condition, we find that Paul was allowed to welcome guests into the home there in Rome, that he was able to minister to some of the Christians there in Rome. And remember, Luke is with him. And it is probably here in Rome that Paul and Luke meet the man who is called Theophilus in verse 3. That's almost certainly not his real name. Uh, Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. And therefore, that probably means this was someone in authority in Rome Uh, Someone for whom it was particularly dangerous to be a Christian. And so instead of using his real name, Luke calls this person Theophilus, which means friend of God. Uh, We think Theophilus is a Gentile. Uh, Jews were despised by the Romans. Jews rarely found their way into positions of Roman authority, especially in Rome itself. Yet Theophilus is a Gentile in Roman authority who has become a follower of Jesus. Uh, When Paul writes from Rome to the Philippians, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Perhaps Theophilus is one of those of Caesar's household who was a Christian in Rome greeting those Christians in Philippi. Of Caesar's household, we think means not that he was related to the Caesar, but that he worked in the emperor's administration. So as a Roman Christian, 
Theophilus had been experiencing the turmoils in the church of Rome that we've seen addressed in the book of Romans. Let me just remind you again a little bit of what's going on in the background here. Remember, the church in Rome was originally a Jewish church. Jews had traveled from Rome to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And they had heard the gospel preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost and by others in the weeks that followed. Some of those Roman Jews had become Christians and then they returned to Rome. And those first Jewish Christians started the church in Rome. Perhaps some Gentiles gradually became part of the church. And then Claudius came into power and Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome in AD 49. So that suddenly what had been a mainly Jewish church had no more Jews. They were all kicked out of the city. Only the Gentile Christians were left in the church in Rome. And so over the next five years, the Jews remained expelled and the church in Rome was now all Gentile. Perhaps Theophilus, most likely Theophilus, was reached with the gospel and came to be a Christian during those five years. And so Theophilus is a part of this church. He's along with the other Gentiles. They're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Emperor Nero comes to power. And the Emperor Nero is going to do a lot of bad things. One of the things he does when he comes to power that's not so bad is he lets the Jews come back to Rome. And everything in the church in Rome gets weird because the Jewish Christians had, continuing, had continued practicing their Jewish ways. The Jewish Christians had continued to practice certain Jewish customs, including certain Jewish feast days and certain Jewish rituals. Those had probably been part of this early church in Rome and its Jewish beginnings. But once the Jews left, the Gentile Christians hadn't been doing any of that. And so you have Jewish Christians who had been following Jesus with one kind of lifestyle, a lot of rituals, a lot of things from the Old Testament. And you have these Gentile Christians who had been following Jesus in a very different kind of lifestyle that didn't hold on to all of those Old Testament feasts and rituals. And suddenly they're thrown back together at one time as Jewish Christians come back into the city. And so there's discord in the church in Rome. This is some of what we're going to talk about on Sunday nights in just a few weeks as we look at Romans 14. And so we think this man, Theophilus, probably working in the emperor's administration, he had become a Christian and he's a part of this. And as a Gentile, as all these Jewish Christians start coming into the church, he's beginning to feel the difference in tone and he may be beginning to have his doubts. What have I gotten myself into? What is this thing called Christianity that I have joined up with? Is the gospel really for Gentiles like me? Or is Christianity really just going to be another sect of Judaism? Is Christianity going to require circumcision? Is Christianity going to require feast days? Is Christianity going to require all these Jewish traditions? For many of these Gentile Christians, they were beginning to feel like square blocks that needed to fit into round holes. They were not able to jump into these things that the Jewish Christians just took for granted. 
and Paul and Luke are there in the providence of God. Ministering to these people. Seeing this happen. And so most think that Luke's primary intention in writing both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is to help Theophilus, but not just Theophilus, to help others like him by giving him a trustworthy account of the things that Jesus said and did, as well as a history of the first years of the church, to show that from the beginning the gospel was for the Gentiles too. As Luke is caring for Paul, as Luke is working alongside Paul during his house arrest in Rome, he begins writing these histories Not only to serving the Gentile Christians that he's spending time with there in Rome, but to help all people have a better understanding of Jesus Christ and the sweet salvation offered by him to the world. And so throughout our study of Luke, we're going to hear this message again and again. The gospel is for everyone. Now. As we prepare ourselves for our study of this gospel, we want to look at Luke's little introduction here, these first four verses. And I want to note just five truths. That's what we're going to do this morning. Five truths about Luke's gospel from these first four verses. And first and foremost, we have to just note and observe that the gospel of Luke is the very word of God. That this is scripture that we are looking at. That the gospel of Luke is part of the Bible. And that's a big deal because the Bible isn't like any other book that you pick up and read. I've mentioned to you before that I had a friend in college who really liked C.S. Lewis. And he thought C.S. Lewis should be included in the Bible. He thought mere Christianity uh, should be included in, in the Bible. I like Lewis. I don't like him that much. Okay. Why are certain books the word of God and other books not? Why as we come to the gospel of Luke, are we treating this book as holy scripture? Why is it one of the the 66 that we say is, is divine? And there's so many other books in the world that are not. So we only have a few minutes to cover this, but we're going to very quickly remind ourselves How Luke and these other books in the New Testament came to be included in our Bibles. And we're going to fly through several passages of Scripture in a hurry. So get your Bible open, get your fingers ready to to work. We're going to take a quick walk through the New Testament and remind ourselves why we can say Luke is Scripture. This book is from God. And I actually want you to start in Matthew 7. So turn to Matthew 7, beginning verse 28. Matthew 7, end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 28. We read this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now we're going to see tonight that this is just after 400 years of silence. There had been 400 years without a word from God. 400 years without a prophet. And suddenly, here comes this man, Jesus Christ, and he's teaching with an authority that astonishes the people. There was a notable, distinctive, qualitative difference 
between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Pharisees and the religious leaders that the people were used to. Jesus was something different. Look at Mark 13. Mark 13, verse 31, in an astonishing claim. Mark 13, verse 31, Jesus says this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now imagine if I came in here saying that. Hi, my name is Justin. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words I say will never pass away. You would think he's crazy, right? You would think, what does this man think about himself? Boy, isn't he arrogant? Yet Jesus is claiming here that his words, yes, he is teaching with an authority different than the people are used to. Why? Because his words are the same as the scripture of the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, the word of Jehovah stands forever. Jesus is saying, when I speak, God speaks. Jesus says, when I teach, it is God teaching you. And people heard him say that and they thought either he's lying or he's a crazy person or he's telling the truth. And he is the son of God. Uh, just remember Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. It says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So God has spoken to humanity and he has done so through his son who walked through the hill towns of Galilee, who came into Jerusalem. And as he spoke, God was speaking. So God's work of giving divinely inspired scripture had ceased for 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. But now God was speaking again through Jesus Christ, but not just through Jesus because look at Luke 6. Look at Luke 6, beginning in verse 13. Luke 6, beginning in verse 13. You could actually read the next four verses. You'll see more of this, but we're just going to read verse 13. Luke 6, verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Well, this is a big deal. You see, Jesus actually had lots of disciples. There were big crowds that for a while followed Jesus wherever he went. In fact, he couldn't get away from them. He would get on a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. And by the time he got there, they had all followed and come around the side. He had large crowds of disciples for a while. Then he, there were, for a while, he had a group called the 70, the 70 disciples that would follow Jesus. But out of those, he chose 12. And he said, you're not just my disciples. He called them apostles. An apostle is an authoritative representative. These 12 men were given special access to Christ as they were being prepared to be his official spokesman. It would be through these apostles that Jesus would give even more scripture to his people. We've looked at Matthew, we've looked at Mark, we've looked at Luke. Let's look at John. So turn to John 14. John 14, verse 24. John 14, beginning in verse 24. Such a crucial passage in understanding your Bible. John 14, verse 24. Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 
And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That's audacious. Then he says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, Jesus draws a comparison between himself and his apostles, his disciples. He says that the words that he speaks are not his own. That, as the, that the Father speaks through him. He speaks the words of the Father. Jesus is the sent one. Jesus is the apostle of the Father. He is the authoritative representative of the Father. When Jesus speaks, it is the same as God the Father speaking. And now Jesus says, apostles, that's what you're going to do. God is going to send the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is going to give you words to say and he's going to bring to mind things that I've taught you over these years and then you're going to speak and as you speak, it will be me speaking. You will be my authoritative representatives. This is going to happen as they spoke with their mouths but it was also going to include written form. Just look a page over John 16. John 16 beginning in verse 12. John 16, beginning in verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you all. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the disciples were not able to handle everything that Jesus wanted to say to them. So Jesus says, I am going to be a gentle shepherd. I am going to lovingly care for you by not unloading all this glorious truth on you at one time. Through my spirit, I am going to patiently reveal truth to you. And then you will be able to take what is mine and declare it. The Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. You will then declare it to others. And so the Gospels seem to indicate that God was going to give his people new scriptures. And that these would come through Jesus and specifically through these apostles. These chosen representatives of Christ. And the rest of the New Testament bears out that that's exactly what happened. 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 37. Paul, an apostle chosen out of due time, appointed by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul makes this amazing statement. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 37. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual... He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now just think about that statement for a moment. Paul just said that if anyone disagrees with his writing, he should doubt that he's a spiritual person. Right? How can, how can Paul say something like that? The only way he can reasonably make a statement like that is if Paul is convinced that what he is writing is the very word of God. He says, I've just written you a command. Just so you remember, it's a command of the Lord. 
Paul understood he was writing scripture. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, a representative of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus, by his spirit, is carrying Paul to to write what is true. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. This one's important. Make sure you see it. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. So then, Gentile Christians in Ephesus, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. So we have this picture of the household of God and these Gentiles in Ephesus. They've been brought into this structure. They've been brought into this great household of God. And then Paul says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has Jesus as our cornerstone. The church is growing century after century as people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are being saved and brought into this structure. But the foundation of the church was laid once for all time. And what is that foundation? The apostles and prophets. And not them themselves but the words that they spoke on behalf of the Lord Jesus, the scriptures, which are the teaching of Christ's apostles and prophets, are the foundation on which the church is built. Mount Hermon, we are no longer in the foundation era of the church. The foundation for the church was built back in the first century. We're now, I think, getting close to the putting the last brick in place. Right? I think we're near the end, is my guess, of the church building process. C.S. Lewis did not live during the foundation era of the church. He was not appointed as an apostle. As great as books like Mere Christianity are, they are not. It's scripture. These apostles, these prophets, they wrote as divine representatives of Christ to provide that foundation for the thousands of years of church building that was going to be happening. Paul understood that he was writing scripture. And he understood that that's what the apostles were called to do. And Peter did too. Um, just listen to 2 Peter 3, 15 through 18. Just listen to what Peter says. He says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things of them that are hard to understand. By the way, isn't it encouraging that Peter found Paul hard to understand sometimes? Peter's talking about the letters of Paul. And he says, there are some things in Paul that are hard to understand. Well, yay. I'm glad Peter felt that way too, right? And then Peter says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Peter says the letters of Paul are scripture. Peter understood That when Paul was speaking and writing as an apostle, what we have is scripture. And then one final verse, Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude clearly sees the truths of God as constituting a certain set of beliefs. And he says there's something called the faith. And he says you're to contend for the faith. 
Christianity is not this amorphous thing that keeps moving and changing. No, Christianity is the faith handed down once for all. And that's what we have in the New Testament. The early church, 200s, 300s, they had the task of discerning which books were really written by apostles or with the apostles' um, authority to be included in the Bible. The great test, the supreme mark that determined whether a book should belong in the Bible was apostolicity. Everybody say apostolicity. apostolicity. Was it connected to an apostle as a divine representative of Jesus? Matthew, written by an apostle. Matthew. Mark was not an apostle, but he was Peter's right-hand man. Mark traveled with Peter. Mark learned from Peter. We actually think Mark does show up in the Gospels. We think he was the, the boy that ran naked from the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an interesting passage if you've never read it. So we think that was probably Mark. Okay? But Mark wrote, and what we have in the Gospel of Mark is probably from Peter because he wrote as Peter's associate. So Mark connected to an apostle. Uh, let's see. Luke, Luke acts... Perhaps Hebrews, if I had to guess, I actually think Hebrews was also written by Luke. Uh, as we've seen, he was Paul's partner. He was with Paul a lot. He was Paul's associate. And as we're going to see a little bit later, he even wrote with Paul's authority and Paul's permission. And so what you have in Luke comes from the authority of the apostle Paul. John wrote the Gospel of John, his letters, Revelation. He was an apostle. Letters of Paul, written by an apostle. Hebrews, either written by Luke or Paul. If not, certainly an apostle. We see that in Hebrews 13, 22 through 24. James, written by the brother of Jesus. He's called an apostle in Galatians 1, 19. Peter was an apostle. Jude was the brother of the apostle James and wrote with James. So here's what determined what ends up in your New Testament. Does it fulfill Jesus' promise that he would work through his apostles to reveal to them what needed to be delivered and handed down once for all for the sake of the church? And what we have in the New Testament is complete and it is wonderful. And so, yes, we believe as we come to the Gospel of Luke that this is not like reading any other book. We are interacting with the divine apostolic word of God. All right, that's point one. We're going to be speeding up a little more with each point, okay? Here we go. Point number two. Looking particularly at verses one through four, we see that this gospel is well-researched. It is well-researched. We saw last week that Luke is a historian. This gospel is well-researched. Does it come from the Spirit of God? Absolutely. But the Spirit of God worked through the personality and the skills and the abilities and experiences of, the, of Luke. And so Luke even tells us about some of the sources that he used as he was putting together this gospel. He mentions in verse 2, he says, Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke was not an eyewitness. Luke wasn't there with Jesus as Jesus was moving around through Galilee. Remember, Luke is an Antiochian Gentile. He's not a Galilean Jew like Peter and Matthew and John and those guys. But Luke had met those eyewitnesses. He had spent time with those eyewitnesses who had become ministers of the word. He had learned from them that had this firsthand knowledge, what the Lord Jesus had said, what the Lord Jesus had done. We think 
that it was during the years 57 to 59, Paul stuck in that prison in Caesarea Maritime. He can't do anything. What's Luke doing while he's caring for Paul? He's also taking trips up to Galilee. He's also spending time in Jerusalem. He's maybe visiting over in Bethlehem. And he is putting together the information he needs to write this gospel. Uh, In Jerusalem, we know he was there when Paul interviewed James and spent time with the brother of Jesus. We know that Luke would have met with the elders of the church in Jerusalem and spent time with the congregation of Christians there. We think he probably went to some of the most important places. Luke went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He followed the road that Christ took to the cross. He well researched his gospel. He may have taken excursions up to Capernaum, uh, even all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. The point is this. Luke is not a historian who is writing hundreds and hundreds of years after his subject, relying on third-hand, fourth-hand, fifth-hand sources. No, this is Luke writing his gospel 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Luke writes this gospel 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and he's writing it based on the first-hand accounts of people who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, were witnesses of these events, and bore witness to what they saw. Notice that Luke also mentions that he wasn't the first person to write this stuff down. He mentions that there were other accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Do you see it in verse 1? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. He says many have been doing this. Many have begun writing narratives of what happened during the lives of Jesus, in the life of Jesus. That should not surprise us. Uh, Those who knew Jesus and became believers recognized that they were living in a very special time. They were witnesses to some of the most important events in the history of the world. When you read the miracles in the gospel, you, you might think that people back then were used to miracles. They were not used to miracles. Miracles were as astounding to them then as they are to us now. I think some people think that back in Bible times, miracles happened all the time. They did not. Okay? Uh, basically, you have like three clusters of miracles. You have a cluster of miracles around Moses and then hundreds of years with no miracles. And then you have a cluster of miracles around the prophet Elijah and then hundreds of years with no miracles. And then suddenly Jesus comes on the scene. And suddenly there's, there's a dead man getting up from the grave. There are people being healed of leprosy, a disease from which no one had ever been healed before. Right? There were blind men who were blind from birth, who were recovering their sight. Of course, people were starting to write this down. And by the way, don't believe those who try and argue that the people in Israel were illiterate and couldn't write things down. There have been lots of great studies to show that actually the Jewish people were a very literate people and they wrote down a lot. Then you can imagine the pressure that churches were putting on the apostles to write these things down for them so that they could preach and teach about Jesus. As the apostles were traveling to the various little new churches that were getting started throughout the ancient world, they would come and they would share what they had seen and heard. Imagine Peter showing up at a church on a Sunday morning. Okay, Maybe he goes up to Antioch. And he preaches at that church at Antioch. And he says, let me tell you uh, about one time when I decided I was going to get out and try and walk on water. And Peter preaches and he tells those people about that experience and what happened to him. And then the, the pastors of that church, when he's about to leave, they say, Peter, thank you for coming. 
Thank you for sharing what you saw and what happened. We really need you to write this stuff down so that on the weeks when there's not an apostle here, we can tell what happened. We can tell the stories of Jesus. And so very quickly, you can imagine there's pressure on the apostles. Write these things down for us because we're not going to have visiting apostles every Sunday. Right. We've got to have something we can work from to tell our people about Jesus. And then, of course, as we heard earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to the apostles remembrance all that he had said to them. For what purpose? So that they could record it, so that it could be passed down to future generations. Now, we do know about at least one narrative that Luke had at his disposal when he wrote this gospel. Have you ever done a plan, a Bible reading plan where you just read straight through? So you like finished Mark and then you went to Luke. If you did that, you might have noticed as you were reading through Luke. Wow, some of these passages seem really Familiar. Even the wording seems really familiar. And that's because when Luke wrote Luke, Mark had already been written and Luke had Mark. Uh, in fact, I love this. This is the geek in me, but I think this is really cool. So just, just bear with me and maybe you'll like it. I don't know. Second Timothy chapter 4. You have Paul imprisoned in Rome for the last time. This is a different imprisonment. This is probably not house arrest imprisonment. This is, this is Paul now waiting to be beheaded by Nero. But he's imprisoned in Rome. He's waiting to be executed. And he writes this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. And then he goes on to say, When you come... Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. See, here is Paul in prison in Rome, and he's got Luke with him. And Paul says, send Mark. We have some work to do with Mark. And then he says, I'm cold. Bring my coat. And then he says, make sure you bring the books and above all, the parchments. Commentator uh, Geldenheis says, These words, written in Rome, AD 64-65, involuntarily raise the questions as to whether Luke was not then, with the help and perhaps under the guidance of Paul, engaged upon some kind of writing. And for this reason, Paul requests that Mark, who had probably already written his gospel by that time, should be brought to him, and also that the books and parchment should be brought. In other words, assuming that Timothy did what Paul told him to do in that letter, sometime after this, you had Paul and Luke and Mark and the parchments on which the gospel of Mark had been written, and all of them were working together, huddled together, writing these things down for future generations. And so you have Mark and Luke working alongside each other. You have Luke with copies of Mark's gospel. You have Paul there overseeing the whole process. And this is how Luke came to be. All of this is to say, this is a well-researched, historically reliable gospel. Number three, we see in this introduction that this gospel is comprehensive. Let me explain what I mean. I'm not saying that Luke records everything that Jesus said and did, right? You remember that John tells us that uh, he supposes that the world could not contain all the books 
if he were to write down absolutely everything that Jesus said or did. So that's not what I mean. The Gospel of Luke doesn't have everything that Jesus said or did. What I do mean is this. Luke's Gospel is comprehensive in that it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the life of Jesus and gives a more thorough account of his life and ministry than any of the other Gospels. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. When it says followed all things closely, that should be better translated, I think, having traced all things closely. And for some time past, probably means from the start, from the beginning. In other words, here's the great feature of Luke's gospel. He doesn't start with Jesus as a man. Luke, in his research, did what Matthew and Mark and John did not. He went and discovered, how did Jesus come into the world? What do we know about the beginning days of Christ? Mark's gospel starts with Jesus already as a grown man. Luke decided to learn more about what happened before them, which is why some of the most precious Christmas passages in your Bible are from where? They're from the gospel of Luke. Over the next several months, we're going to benefit from Luke's work as we learn about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Zechariah meeting Gabriel there in the temple and the birth of John the Baptist and Gabriel visiting Mary and the song of Mary. And you're going to have the manger in Bethlehem and shepherds and all of that is a part of Luke's gospel and not the other gospels. And it comes because of his research and because of him writing a comprehensive history. Professor Otto Piper says, whenever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, the judgment has been unanimous. Luke is one of the finest and ablest historians of the ancient world. Comprehensive. Number four, this gospel is orderly. It is orderly. Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, some commentators disagree on this, but I, I read a dissertation recently that I think convincingly shows that Luke's gospel is truly written in chronological order. Uh, Matthew likes to group his stories together by theme. Luke seems to give us a truly historical, chronological record of the life of Christ. Uh, Luke did his best to take all the information he had found about Jesus and to put each account, each story in its proper place on the timeline of the life of Jesus. Uh, he basically followed the same pattern as a lot of the Greek and Roman histories, which we think he was familiar with. He was a well-educated man. And so his gospel is truly orderly. And then number five, finally, this gospel is intended to give certainty. It is intended to give certainty. So this is the big question. Why did Luke write this gospel? And he tells us in verse 4. He says to Theophilus, he says, I'm writing that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Remember what I shared with you about Theophilus earlier. Think about how different his situation was from ours. Look, you and I look back on 2,000 years of church history. We see how Gentile the Christian church is. Every one of us in this room is a Gentile. We're used to Christianity being a multi-ethnic, diverse, Gentile faith. 
Theophilus didn't know any of that. As far as he could tell, he might have gotten into something that he's not going to fit in. Uh, When we think about the people of God throughout history, it starts out as mostly Jewish. But now the number of Gentile believers in Christ church is probably 10,000 to one when you compare the number of Jewish Christians to Gentile Christians. But Theophilus knew none of that. For him, it may not have been clear at all that Gentiles like him could be full-fledged members of the people of God and not second-class citizens. And so to confirm for Theophilus that Jews and Gentiles alike have equal standing before God and are equally welcomed by God and are equally accepted by God through faith in Jesus, Luke tells them the story of Jesus in the book of Luke. He gives them the account of the early church in the book of Acts to show how God gave the church this global Gentile welcoming mission. This is the great theme of Luke's gospel. This is the great truth that we need to let fall upon us in power. Anyone who is willing to come to Jesus Christ may be saved. Anyone who is willing to come to Jesus may know the blessing of God and the promises that were made to Abraham. You are here this morning. You are probably not an ethnic Jew. Okay? That does not matter. Whatever your background, whatever your history, Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to make you right with God if you only turn to Him in faith and believe. Ultimately, the Gospel of Luke is a Gospel of evangelistic invitation. Will you turn from your life of sin? Will you surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus? Will you receive the sweet salvation that's offered to Him? That's what this book is all about. And I hope that as we begin to study it together, we will fall more and more in love with our Savior. For I say amen, let me just tell you that tonight um, we're going to be doing one last introductory sermon. And the next week we jump in full-fledged. Tonight's introductory sermon is what happened in the 400 years between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament. In other words, when we pick up in the Gospel of Luke, what has been... When you read the Old Testament, you don't read about a single Pharisee or a Sadducee. There's no Romans running around. What in the world changed in the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning? That's what we're going to tackle tonight. And the next week, we're going to jump in full-fledged to this gospel. Let's pray.